Who rules your life? Who sets the direction for you? Someone does, it's inevitable. Your thoughts, your goals, your desires, what you believe is right or wrong, those things are not random, they are not neutral, they are indicators ultimately of who rules your life. And the simple answer to that question would be myself, right? That, that you are the one who, who charts your course, uh, you make choices, you decide how to react, what your goals are, uh, you decide things based on what you perceive to be standards of right and wrong. Um, unless you're a child here who's under the supervision of a parent, you came this morning by your own volition. Uh, you decided this was where you were going to be. You, you've made decisions about how you're going to celebrate Christmas over the next 24 hours. You decided to buy gifts or not, as it may be, and all of those things that you decided. But even then, you are not a sort of neutral soul uninfluenced by any others. Your decisions are still guided. Your desires, the things you want, what you deem important, all of that is an indication of who rules your heart, who rules your life. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 72. It's a psalm about a ruler. It may seem like an odd place to go on Christmas Eve, but when we started this series back in the beginning of December in Genesis chapter 3, uh, this was the, the psalm that, I, that, that the, I think the Lord had just laid on my heart that had been impressed upon me just where I wanted to go with all of this. Psalm 72 is one of only two psalms that is attributed to Solomon, but it is considered a part of the collection of Psalms of David. If you look at the very last verse in Psalm 72, verse 20, it's one of the rare places you find a postscript in the Psalms. It says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. There are essentially five books that make up the Psalms, and this is the conclusion to book two, which is largely a collection of David's psalms, and yet we know from the beginning that it is attributed to Solomon. I would suggest to you that perhaps one of the things we're seeing here is actually a prayer of David. Solomon is about to become king. His, his son is about to take the throne, and David is nearing the end of his life, and it could very well be that this is David's last prayer for Solomon, transcribed by Solomon and attributed to him, but very much the words of a father who had been king praying to the Lord on Solomon's behalf. Either way, whoever is ultimately responsible, it is God's word. And I also understand it's not a place that we look to generally on Christmas Eve, the, the, the hymnal for Israel, the, the book of Psalms, but this is really about an ideal ruler. It's not just about any ruler, it is about one who is above all others, and it is the one we have been preparing for all throughout Advent. And it will not take long as you read through Psalm 72 to see that this, this has to go beyond just Solomon. Solomon had about a 40-year reign full of ups and downs, the latter part of it more downs than ups. And yet in this Psalm, there is a hope for a king who will lead his people in righteousness, who will save his people, who will be a delivering king. And I just want us to take a few minutes on this Christmas Eve morning just to consider this ruler and why this king should be your ruler. He should be your king. And I want to give you three reasons for that. It is because his reign is upright, his reign is unending, and his reign is universal. That's what we're going to see in this psalm. And so let me just begin with verse 1. Psalm 72, verse 1 says, Give the king your justice, O God, 
and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. So here's the beginning of the prayer, seeking a king who is upright. May the king be good. The opening verses are so clear. Lord, would you, would you give your righteousness to this king? And if you do that, then verse two says, then, then his judgments will be wise. He will act justly because he's acting based on the righteousness that you give him. And if indeed you give him righteousness and he now acts out of that righteousness, verse three says, then the people will prosper in righteousness. They will be blessed because the righteousness of God is coming to them through their ruler and it is a righteous kingdom. And so God, give me a righteous ruler. That's a good prayer if it's David praying for Solomon, but it's a good prayer for you and I that, that God would, through Jesus Christ, give us a righteous rule that he would lead us, that we'd, we, we would be submitted to him. We, we often get concerned with, with, with governments and politics and all of the structures around us. And ultimately our, our, our ruler is Christ but it's good to also pray that the righteousness of Christ would be at work in, in saving those who lead us as well, that his righteousness would be poured out to us through him, through others that he would give to us. But we have a righteous ruler in, in our Savior. If you look down at verse 12, he comes back to the same theme, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Very common in Hebrew poetry to have a theme and then circle back to it in different ways, and that's what's going on here in the Psalms. So here it is again. The king's reign is good. He will do what God says is right, and therefore he will act justly. This king will make laws and apply them to all with fairness because he is a just and good king. This king has compassion on those who are poor and weak. He rescues those who have nothing, those who, who feel like they have no hope. This king is able to provide deliverance. This king hates violent oppressors, those who, who treat human life cheaply, who don't see it as made in the image of God. And so he will judge them, but also he rescues those who are victims. For all who have been wronged or slandered or falsely accused, this king will be your redeemer. If you are poor in spirit, this king is your helper. If you have lived in turmoil, this king is your peace. Uh, the, the saying is familiar across many different cultures and many different religions. You've probably heard it one way or another and sometimes hear it attributed wrongly to scripture. God helps those who help themselves. There you go. There's a grain of truth in that, in that indeed scripture says to believers in Jesus Christ that we are to put to death sin, that we are to walk as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, not claim faith while refusing to obey. We are to provide for our own needs. So there's that, that grain of truth, but the saying itself is not found in scripture. And the lesson in Psalm 72 is this king has come for those who are utterly helpless those who feel like there is nothing they bring, that they, that they cannot do anything. This king is strong and he is good and, and he will provide, he will supply what's needed. They will not be forgotten or overlooked. 
all of this is true because this king is uniquely, perfectly righteous. This is the kind of king you and I should be eager to follow, to know him and to bow before him and to do his will. Psalm 72 is a plea, a prayer that, that the king would be righteous. And again, to go back to the immediate context, if indeed it's David praying for Solomon or it is simply Solomon rehearsing a, a prayer that he's asking for on the, from the people on his own part that they would plead for righteousness, the reality is this ultimately is not Solomon. Solomon's unrighteousness is glaring, particularly as he moves through his life. You come into the latter years, 1 Kings 11 says he took wives from nations that he was not to do so because indeed the, 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 the reason God forbid that was that this marriage with other nations would lead to worship of gods of other nations. And that's what Solomon falls into. 1 Kings 11 verse 4 says, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Chapter later in 1 Kings tells us that when Solomon is coming off the scene and his son now becomes king, one of the first appeals from the elders to the son is, please lighten the load on us. Your, your father has taxed us heavily for his building and his projects, and we have been under this oppressive load. Please lighten the load. And so even that tells us that, that the wise justice that Solomon began with, the desire, the devotion to, to serve Yahweh, the care for the needy, all began to fade during the course of his rule and he became more enamored with his power and with the pleasure that he could acquire through that and with rewarding those who gave him pleasure so much so that, as First King says, he turned his heart away from wholly following after the Lord. Earthly rulers will always let us down because they, like us, are by nature not righteous. That apart from the, the gracious work of God, to transform our hearts, that all that we do, all that we desire is in rebellion against our creator. It is not right, it is not good by nature. We need the sovereign grace of God in order to rescue. We must be given righteousness by one who is righteous, by a king who is perfect in righteousness. That's why Psalm 72 still is pointing us forward. It's still giving us hope for this coming king who has unfailing righteousness, who's worthy to be followed. Pick up in verse five, Psalm 72, verse five. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. You already start to get it here, but Psalm 89 helps us get some clarity with how he's using these sun and moon references. In Psalm 89, it says, his offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. It is a picture of longevity. Psalm 72 is saying that as long as there are a sun and a moon shining their light down, that this king will reign. This, this king, may, may his dominion be forever. You, you should submit to this king and follow him because not only is his reign upright, it is good in all of its ways, but because his reign will never end. He repeats this again down in verse 15. 
Psalm 72, verse 15, long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, blessings invoked for him all the day, may there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Again, at, at first glance, this is a, a, a prayer for Solomon and a prayer for, for Solomon's reign as king. May prayer be made for you continually. May there be a constant invoking of blessing upon you. So this is the, the, the subjects in the kingdom being urged to pray for their king, that God would pour down blessing through him. But the long view of Psalm 72, again, clearly takes us past Solomon. It's talking about one whose throne is established forever. It's not simply exaggerating the greatness of Solomon, it's saying there's, there's more. There is one whose fame will continue forever, whose name will endure, whose throne will go on and on, an upright ruler with an unending reign. And he's describing in this passage that the fruit of that, coupled together an upright king with an unending reign, and what it does is it provides blessing for those who are the subjects of that king. They are blessed in multiple ways. He says the people in his domain will, will prosper as never before. They'll be provided for. They will yield fruit in service of the king. They will, they will turn back their worship to the king in honor of him in all that he has provided. It's a, it's a glorious picture of a king whose dynasty does not end. Does the one who rules your life, is he an everlasting king? Is it an everlasting ruler? Does the king who rules your life have plans for your life after you die? Will that one who rules your life continue to be your king? On the day that your flesh finally gives way and your soul continues on in existence, is there a ruler who will never leave you or forsake you? Because this, this ruler has an enduring kingdom and those who are his subjects are blessed forevermore because those who are his subjects, even when they face death, will ultimately be transformed into the glory of his kingdom to experience him and to see their king. Is he your ruler? Look at verse eight. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. You should submit to this king and follow him because his reign is upright, it is unending, and it is universal. It's not only a rule throughout all time, but it is a rule over all space. He's, he's, he's governing all across the seas and the rivers, across the desert, across the land. It says to the very ends of the earth, there are no boundaries that, that will stop his reign. There is no, no stopping the spread of his kingdom that will thwart his rule in any way. People from every language, every tribe, Every nation will come under his dominion. In fact, he says here, even the rulers of the other nations will fall down before him. Who is this ruler? And is he your ruler? So the kids started us in Luke chapter two, 
the Christmas story there with the decree of Augustus that everyone come and, and be taxed. And so they head to Bethlehem. But we know the story goes back into Luke chapter one when God sent his angel Gabriel to a virgin named Mary and Gabriel pronounced on behalf of God, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel says to Mary, the child that is being conceived in you will be uniquely great. There was similar language, but still slightly different just a few verses earlier when the angel comes to Zechariah and speaks of the birth of John, who is the forerunner for Jesus, the one who announces the coming of Jesus. And there it says, he will be great before the Lord. It's very, being very specific that, that the greatness of John will be seen in his ministry, in his service to the Lord. This one, this one named Jesus who will be born to Mary, he says, he will be great, period. He, he will be uniquely different than all others. Jesus is incomparable. People may recognize him as the son of Joseph, but Gabriel says he is the son of the most high. This, this child who is being born to you is the son of God who is now coming in flesh. Mary's boy will have a deep, intimate relationship with God's the, God the Father, the king's this king, this, this coming one who will be king, his first love and his first loyalty will always be to his father, to always do the will of the Most High, to always be in obedience to him, and he will lead then as only God's son could lead. And of course, as, as Gabriel says to Mary, this king will be a king on the throne on the line of David and will be so forever. His kingdom will never end. Understand we know the history of this, but at the time this is given, the, the Davidic line has, has essentially been done for centuries. The, 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 the last king was taken away into captivity, and the rule over Israel now is Roman rule, and it is being done through a Gentile king named Herod, who's not exactly a pleasant individual. And, and, and now the promise is he is going to be born a king in the line of David, and he will hold that throne forever. Jesus will fulfill the promise that had been made to David a thousand years earlier of an eternal throne. He will have an upright, unending, universal reign. This is fulfillment of prophecy. We've already moved from Genesis on through into 2 Samuel and just seeing all of the the expectation of this coming king. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, speaks of a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. Remember Jesse, who is the father of David. He's talking about a descendant from Jesse, and this one would come forth, and the spirit of the Lord would rest upon this, this descendant. And Isaiah 11, verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This one who is coming is perfectly upright in all that he does. And he will reign in righteousness. This, this king 
has come in Jesus Christ. This is the, the king that is promised to Mary. This is the king that has been promised since we began this back in Genesis chapter three. This is the king whom as John is being given a vision, that is the book of Revelation, of the culmination of all things in terms of history as we know it. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That is our King. Jesus is the eternal King. Remember the, the promise where we started back at the beginning of December, that, that verse in Genesis 3.15, when all seems to be at the worst possible state, all that God has made that is very good is now fallen into sin because of what Adam and Eve have done, and it seems like darkness, and in the midst of that, the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Jesus is the mighty ruler who strikes the head of the serpent. Jesus is the one who conquers sin and death. Jesus is the one who defeats evil and gives life and light and forgiveness and hope. Will you bow before him? Will you follow Jesus? Will he be ruler of your life? Because that is, that is what a king does. And what the psalmist has said to us is, when this king rules... There is blessing for his people. Doesn't always change every circumstance. Doesn't mean that everything suddenly works perfectly, but those who submit to and follow Jesus will have a king who is good and loving and wise and who brings peace to chaos. A king who gave him his very self on the cross for sinners that he might rescue us and save us and give us forgiveness. He is a king worthy of your worship. In just a moment, we're gonna be singing Gloria giving glory to him. And, and one day we will see Jesus, not as a baby in a manger, but we will see this king. And he will be your savior if you are trusting in him. That's my prayer for you this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a good king. We thank you that you are right, upright in all of your ways. We thank you that in your sinlessness, you were the perfect sacrifice for sinners. Thank you for taking our sin on yourself in your death on the cross. For all who trust in you, there is forgiveness in your blood. And so I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning who is not following Jesus Christ, who does not know him to be Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray today would be the day when they would bow their heart before you and they would trust in Jesus as Savior. They would see him as King and Lord, as, as the scriptures describe him. Lord Jesus, for we who are trusting in you, thank you. Thank you for the, the privilege it is to worship and to serve. Thank you that amidst our failings, you continue to bestow grace on us. Thank you that we are not left to our own devices, but that you, as the psalmist describes, are this glorious helper who continues to come to his people and continue to strengthen and pour out grace on his people. We desperately need that. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for this opportunity to celebrate your incarnation and to look forward to your coming again in power as king of all. It's in your name we pray. Amen.